several years ago, 15 plus years ago, uh, I began to experiment with running. And uh, I was in a competition at work. In order to win that competition, uh, I had to take up, or at least in my mind, I had to start uh, really running. And so I set out to do the best that I could with that. I, I put together a schedule of what days I would run. I put together specific routes that I would run, different miles on this day, more on this day, less on this day, kind of a rest day here and there. And uh, for, for me, I had run some in high school, a little bit in college, and uh, I hated it. With every fiber of my being, I absolutely despised it. It was torture. The very first step was awful. And every step after that was worse. But what I uh, became convinced of was, over time, the joy. There is something about it as you get trucking and then you're going and you keep going and keep going uh, that a mile or two or three in, it's like, man, this is great. I think I could do this all day long. And I don't know how you get to that point. I don't know how you get over that initial hump of, I genuinely feel like I'm about to die. But th there does come a point where you're like, man, this is great, right? But even with that, I was very, 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 very unsure of ever running in a race. I didn't know what it would be like. I wasn't sure what it would be like. I was kind of uh, afraid of it, if you want to say it like that. I just didn't want to run around other people. You know, it's, I guess, fine to run by their house, but I didn't want to be running with them, you know. And uh, so I always avoided a race. That was just my out. Well, the preacher here, he brings us to the culmination of this long illustration in Hebrews, and he does so with this visual picture of a race. And the picture is intended to demonstrate that our lives, living our lives, is like we're running in a race. That, that's exactly the, the, the metaphor, this illustration that he kind of lays out for us. And it's not the first time we see that, as was read for us earlier from Corinthians. Paul uses sport as an illustration uh, when you participate in that, you don't participate in it just to do it. You're trying to win. Uh, you're running for the purpose of gaining a prize. That's the goal. Uh, now, depending, I guess, on your personality, that may be foreign to you. But for the most part, for many of us, when we play, we want to win. And sometimes that's why men, our wives have to kind of help curtail that a little bit, right? Uh, it just is kind of how it goes sometimes. So as we walk through this today, here's what I want us to note together. Faithfully run the race of life with endurance, firmly focused on Christ. That is the approach. And that's what he's calling us to do here. This is the very tangible, real response the preacher is employing. He is imploring his hearers to say, listen, this is how you live. That's the goal. So remember, as the author of Hebrews writes this book, he is, is offering this in a very different approach than our normal epistles throughout the New Testament. We have 21. This one's unique among all 21. 
because it is laid out as a sermon. The focus of the sermon is the supremacy of Jesus. He is supreme over Moses and angels and any priest or any covenant ritual, old covenant ritual. He is better. And that theme comes up over and over and over and over and over again. And we have the giant section in the middle, really from chapter 4 all the way to the middle of chapter 10. Jesus is our great high priest. The significance of that, what it means. And then he starts to apply that. And he applies that first with that warning, a fourth warning at the end of chapter 10. And then chapter 11, he gives us this giant illustration of all these examples. And now he comes to the ultimate example. The example, the application of these examples in chapter 11. So again, as we walk through it, remember, the call is faithfully run the race of life with endurance. Firmly focused on Jesus. Now, if you grabbed a bulletin, the the points are on there, but there's just two. First, run the race, verse 1. Second, fixed on Jesus, verses 2 and 3. That is the focus of this passage. It's a challenge initially, run the race, and then here's how you're going to do it. If you will run this race successfully, you do it by fixing your gaze, fixing your eyes on Jesus. And that metaphor of running really is consistent throughout these three verses. So we'll come back to it a couple times. First, he says, we're surrounded with this great cloud of witnesses. Now, this is the glorious uh, fall season. Some people say fall season. Some people say football season, right? And uh, the thing that always amazes me, for a few minutes yesterday, I I caught a a glimpse of a game. And the the, uh, cameras spanned out on this stadium filled with 100, probably 1,000 people, all dressed, it seemed to me, in the exact same color, all screaming, waving something in the air, right? Now, here's the idea. The witnesses are like those people in the stands. There they are observing us on this field, on this track of life. Now, the difference is, these witnesses are not cheering in the sense of, hey, you're, you can win the race or I want you to win the race or, or, or anything like that. These witnesses, it, instead, they function as examples. And it's this example. I did run the race. I, I, I did faithfully endure. So it's almost as if those stands are filled with examples. I made it and so can you? That's where he begins. He begins with all of chapter 11, this great cloud of witnesses that function as an example. You can be faithful. You can remain. You can continue. That's where he begins. And then he issues his charge. Now, this charge is very, very, very important. He begins with a couple of things. He initially says, laying aside. Two things that he's going to give us. Now, the word laying aside is a really, 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 really important word to me in my understanding of sanctification throughout our entire New Testament. This word is used several times 
And each time it's put this off, lay this aside, and in contrast, we're going to put this on. We're going to add this. We're taking this off. That's our word. Take this off. And I'll give you an illustration of it in a minute, but let me show you first all of the places that it exists. Uh, it begins for us, there's one time it occurs in Mark. That time, in some respects, doesn't add anything to this discussion. So there's nine occurrences. That's the first one. The second one is in Acts. We'll go to that, back to that one in a minute. The rest are in the epistles. The first occurrence in the epistles is Romans 13. So if you look, hopefully you can see this. Romans 13, it's not highlighted because it's not framed, said the same way. But if you look here at the end of that first line, so then let us cast off, that's the same word. In first, uh, chapter 13, verse 12 of Romans, what are we taking off? The works of darkness. We'll see that pattern over and over and over again, right? And instead, put on. So we're taking off, we're putting on. Okay, watch the next one. Ephesians 4. He says to put off your former self. This is the manner in which you used to live. The manner in which you used to make decisions. What drove you before that ungodly way you used to live. This old man habit and characteristic. Lay that aside. And he's actually going to say in verse 24, put on the new man which is characterized by the actual attributes of God himself, right? So put off this, put on this. Verse 25, he uses it again to put off lying, falsehood. Uh, the next one, Colossians 3. And you can see there in Colossians 3, there's, there's several things that he lists, uh, all of them similar, but he says to put off or put away anger, wrath, malice, slander, Obscene talk from your mouth. So he says there's certain things that shouldn't characterize a believer. Put those off. He keeps going. Our text in Hebrews, chapter 12, verse 1, we see again two things he's going to say. Every weight or impediment and the sin, and you can see there at the end, which claims so closely. That, that translation is not wrong. It's not bad. It just isn't quite the same as the entangling Sin. Those two words, they are modifying sin. Sin is what entangles us. This particular sin, we'll, we'll get there in a second. Sorry, I'm jumping ahead of myself. James 1, put away again what? Filthiness and rampant wickedness, and instead do what? Receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. So the putting on there is the way that we receive the word. But we're taking off filthy, filthiness and wickedness. The last one, 1 Peter 2, he says, put away all malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all that. And the same thing he says in 1 Peter 2, 2, receive the word. Take the word, right? Like a newborn baby is drawn to milk. You need the word exactly the same way. So those last two, interestingly enough, what we're putting on is what? The word. We're taking off wickedness. We're we're adding in its place the word. That's what's speaking into our lives. So the last thing I want to show you is I want to jump back to Acts because Acts gives us a tangible, visible example of what this word means. When I say put off, you think in your mind, what is that? 
I get put off. I, I mean, I get the idea. Here's what it means exactly. Look at Acts 7:58. Here they're stoning Stephen, and what do they do? They cast him out of the city and they stoned him, and the witnesses did what? They took their coats off and they laid them down at the feet of Paul. That's the idea of this word. It's literally the idea of taking off an old, dirty set of clothes and laying it aside and putting on something else. And we see that demonstrated tangibly. We have the illustration of taking off that clothing here in Acts 7. So, the first thing he calls us to lay aside then is the impediments, these encumbrances. Literally, this word can mean a large mass or bulk or a burden or a weight. Uh, if you've ever run in a race, you don't want to carry barbells with you. Um, after a while, that would hurt. Uh, it would be hard, right? Um, the truth is you want to take, get rid of every single thing you can. Um, I've seen people run before with a backpack, right? Or I've seen people go on hikes and they got a back, they're carrying all this stuff. And I think every time, I don't know, but it feels like that's making it harder. So what he calls us to do in this race of life is lay aside the stuff that's going to be a distraction that's going to prevent us from running the race the way God would have us to run it. Running the race in a way that we can win. Now, what I want you to consider for a moment is this. What could be weighing you down today? What is it that is preventing you from effectively running the race? And that can be different for everybody. Uh, for some, that may be relationships. Right? Not, not that they're bad. They might be wonderful. But you may be overcommitted to those relationships. That may be where you get your satisfaction from, your joy. You're just, you're so in, wrapped up in that relationship that you aren't running the race effectively. For some of you, maybe the relationship in your life or relationships in your life are a struggle, they're a hurdle. Well, that distraction, that weight is preventing you from running the way God would have you to run. What about your career, work? Uh, what about achievement? Some people are driven constantly by that thought of achievement. And, and initially, maybe in school, it's I got to get good grades. And then after that, it's I got to do this. I got to start this. I got to have a career. I got to have a, a, a good resume, right? And that's what they're living for. They're just longing for that. Some people are looking for the accumulation of material belongings. I got to make sure I have enough. When, when is that? When, when do I have enough? Right? For some people, maybe it's health concerns. I'm worried that there's something going on, or I'm worried that there could be something going on. I'm worried, what if this happens, or what if this happens? And those concerns can prevent us from effectively running the race God's called us to. Now, just for a moment, I want you to stop as we engage this, and I want you to genuinely evaluate for a moment 
what is it that prevents you from running the race? What's the hurdle for you? What's that weight that needs to be put aside? This is an important question. And it's something that far too often we just kind of go past. But the reality is there are things in each of our lives that prevent us from effectively doing, running the race God's called us to run. What is that? For you, what is that? The second one he gives us is this entangling sin. This easily ensnaring sin. Uh, It skillfully attacks on every single side. Now, not to play too much of my hand today, but I am uh, a nature show junkie. I just, if I see a show with a big cat or a crocodile or even elephants or sometimes dolphins or whales or killer whales. or I mean, I'm just telling you, I think those, those are fascinating to me. But have you ever watched one of those shows when for whatever reason they're trapping an animal and that animal initially gets caught and when it initially gets caught, it reacts. And as it reacts to the snare, as it reacts to the trap, it gets entangled more and more and more and more. And eventually, it's so wrapped up, it can't even move. That's this idea. This ensnaring sin. It wraps this person up to the degree that they are caught. They can't move. Now here's what's interesting. For many of you, as you've engaged with this passage or maybe heard it taught, somebody will talk about sin and they talk about sin how? Generally, all kinds of different sins, plural. Now, in truth, is that bad? Is that, can we not say that? No, of course, we we can say that. But here's the reality. Is that what the preacher was saying to this audience? I did a study again on sin in the book of Hebrews. This word that's used here is word used 25 times throughout the entire book. Do you know it is used 10 times in the plural? Do you know every occurrence in the plural? Do you know what it's talking about? Sacrifice for sins. Do you know every occurrence in the singular? You know what it's talking about? The sin. The sin of denying, rejecting, turning from Jesus. That's the issue. And listen to me. We've talked about this four times with these warning texts. But the warning texts become almost this giant in the room with Hebrews that make people say, Right? Because we go too far either way because, again, of the theological debate that happens with this, with these warning texts. And the theological debate is, it really doesn't matter what you do, you can't lose your salvation anyway. Right? Or on the other side, you really need to be careful what you do because if you're not, you're going to lose your salvation. And that is not the point that the preacher is making at all. Both go too far. 
The preacher is offering a genuine warning. And he's offering that because he's writing to Jewish believers who are genuinely contemplating. Is being a believer, a follower of Jesus, really better than Judaism? Is it really better? I mean, in some ways it doesn't feel that different. So is it really better? And that's why the preacher tells us over and over and over and over and over again, it really is better. Jesus really is better. Jesus is so far superior to the sacrificial system, it really was of no effect. It means nothing without Jesus. Jesus is what makes the sacrificial system, in a sense, of any value at all. You really think a goat? You really think a bird? You really think a a bull can take away your sins? No. It was all a picture of Jesus. So yes, Jesus really is better. And yes, you can't leave him. You can't deny him. You can't reject him. That's the sin. And there's a sense in which that sin has this unique possibility to ensnare you in such a way it causes you to not be able to respond. It traps you in such a way It's almost as if you can't get away. That's the danger and that's the warning the preacher is issuing. Be careful of this idea, denying, rejecting Jesus. Ah, It's not that big of a deal. It is. It's a really big deal. Beware. Be careful. This is serious. So watch out for that. Lay aside these weights. Watch out for that sin. Now, again, it doesn't mean all sin is not an issue. But for the preacher, that's not what he's addressing. And listen, that's the biggest, in some respects, I would say, theological conundrum with this book. When you read those warnings and they say, if you sin, well, what are we thinking? All of us, what are we thinking? We're thinking sin like in English, just generally, that word, big word, sin, because that word isn't one we necessarily have, have to add an S to for it to be plural, right? So we're thinking sin generally. The author isn't. He's not. He's saying if you sin, reject, deny Jesus. That's the sin. That's what he's talking about. And throughout this book, that's why he uses sin in the plural over and over, or in the singular, over and over and over again. It's used more times in the singular than the plural. You want to know why? Because that's his focus, denying, rejecting. That's the issue. So now he transitions from this sin to persevering again. So he says, through patient endurance, steadfastness, we might run this race that's set before us. This is the call. Be steadfast, patiently endure. Now, how are you going to do that? You do that by obedience, through relying on God's power and God's promises. Listen, 
even in the face of stiff, hard opposition, even when I'm, I'm kind of being pushed back on, I obediently remember, focus on the power and promise of God. And I say, okay, I, don't, I mean, I don't know how this is going to work out, but I'm going to trust. Remembering those witnesses, those examples, there they are. They surround us. They made it. So can you. So can we. That's the point the preacher makes. And so now he moves on. He moves forward to fixing our eyes on Christ. You know, one of the things that's a struggle for us is often we can become overwhelmed in our race as we look at others. We look at others and we say, man, their race is better than mine. Their situation is better than mine. Their situation is easier than mine. Uh, Mine is harder. Uh, I I have family relationships that are more difficult, or I have uh, relational uh, issues that are more difficult than their race. But, But one of the keys for us to note is He says at the end of verse 1, what? That we might run the race set before us. In some senses, your race is unique to you. In many respects, your struggles, your opposition, your hardship, your successes, they are unique to you. But God calls us, you, me, collectively, us, to run our race that is set before us. And if we will, he will give grace. He will strengthen you for the things that come. He will strengthen you for the stuff that comes into your path, your race. He'll strengthen you to endure. But that's where that second point comes in. As we fix our eyes on Jesus. This is how we have success in the race. Staying fixed, focused on Christ. Part of the process of running is to fix your eyes on the goal. One of the hardest parts of running is when you can't see the end. You know, so if you run any distance at all, when you start, you can't see where you're going. But if you've ever run at all, and even if you've just run from this side of the room to that, you know what I'm talking about. When you see the goal in in sight, all of a sudden it gets easier to run. You, You can see it. You can see where you're going. Listen, for a believer, this is the reality. The reality is Jesus is the goal. Jesus is the prize. Knowing Jesus is what this is all about. Now, in many respects, we cannot in this light, in this phase of the race, we cannot fully know him. However, for many of us, we can know him far more intimately than we do right now. We can grow in our knowledge of who he is. We can grow in our understanding of how he engages us. But the key for us is, what is it that you're after as a believer? In truth, it's Jesus. 
And, and, and the reality is for many of us as believers, there can be a variety of reasons that we follow the Lord to some extent. Sometimes we can have followed the Lord because of family, right? Mom and dad did, or they brought me to church and, you know, you're not a difficult person. You just kind of follow along. But at some point for this to be yours, you have to fix your eyes on Jesus. It's got to be personal for you. So, so what, is this, what is it as a believer that you're after? What's the goal? Jesus. Jesus is the goal. He's enough. He's all we need, right? And so this is what he frames for us in verses 2 and 3. First, he says he's the originator. He's the completer. Salvation, faith, a faith relationship with God, it happens through Jesus alone. That's it. Without him, we don't have it. We can't. He is the originator of all of this. It begins with him. Salvation is available through Jesus alone. But not only that, he is the one who will complete our, our faith or bring it to its culmination. In essence, even glorification. So our faith is all about him, and he's also the one who completes it. He brings it about, brings it to its intended goal, to the finished purpose. So thus again, we must be firmly focused on him. And part of the way that we do that is by considering his example. He says, what is this example? It's the joy that was set before him. He endured the cross and despised the shame and is set down at the right hand of the Father. So a couple of things. First, Jesus endured, why? For the joy that was set before him. Now, what is that joy? If you think about this, this is absolutely glorious. The joy that was before Jesus was the joy of bringing salvation to those he loves. It was the joy of bringing making salvation available to humanity. That joy was enough to endure all the horrors of the cross. All the horrors of opposition as he lived on this earth. Frankly, all the horrors of laying aside all that he is as God in order to take on human flesh. All of that is worth it. Because of the joy of salvation for you and for me. Think that through for a moment. Jesus looked past the opposition, the hardship, the difficulty to the joy that would come. Listen, that is an example for you. The suffering and struggle and opposition and hardship you endure now, you too can look past to the coming joy. Right? That's how Jesus is first our example. Second, he endures the cross by despising the shame of the cross. How is the cross this great shame? Well, first, it's obviously a violent, painful death, but it's also described in the Old Testament, New Testament, somebody that's hung on a tree, it is a shame. This is a shameful thing to be hung on a tree to die. There's this degree of public humiliation, but there's also the denial, the, 
the fact that God himself turns his back on his own son. Folks, do you understand as lonely as you may feel at times, you have truly never been alone because God has not turned his back on you. God turned his back on Jesus. And Jesus endured that. Actually, Jesus did not just endure that. He despised the shame of that. Literally, the word despised there means he just treated it insignificantly. This is really, in the grand scheme of things, this is of no consequence at all. Jesus did that for you and for me. And in truth, for many of us, as we walk through life and we, we come across these things that we say, oh, this is this horrible, hard tragedy. No, it's, it's a flat tire. Right? And that doesn't mean we don't come across some hard things. Some of us have been in a doctor's office and received some really horrible news. I'm not suggesting that's not a hard thing. What I am suggesting to you is that you and I can look at it exactly the way Jesus did. This is insignificant. It is of no consequence really in the grand scheme of things. Jesus is bigger than that bad news. He's bigger than hardship. He's bigger than relationship struggles. He's bigger than a lack of success. He's bigger than all of that. But do we believe that? Do I really believe that? When I believe that, it shows up in the way that I live and choose and respond. He goes on, the last one. What's the result of all this? Jesus is exalted. And from the very first chapter of Hebrews, the author's been reminding us over and over and over and over again from Psalm 110, Jesus has this high exalted place at the Father's right hand. Listen, don't forget, Jesus endured all that, but how did it end? God has highly exalted him. And he is seated right now at the Father's right hand and makes intercession for us. Why? Because he's seated there. That's enough. Jesus, as we've said several times in the discussion of this high priestly ministry, Jesus is not frantically running back and forth to God. So-and-so in Antarctica, they sin. So-and-so in South Africa, they sin. I've covered it. No, that's not what this is. The fact that Jesus sat down at the Father's right hand, that's it. That's enough. And every accusation, and every time there's intercession necessary, just look, there he is, seated. Oh, that's right. This is settled. It's done. Jesus is not frantically in a courtroom with sticky notes and Pieces of paper flying around trying to make intercession for a million people who are constantly, constantly sinning. Constantly failing the grace that's available to us in Christ. He, he's not doing that. The fact that he is seated there is enough. It's done. He intercedes by taking that seat. So he challenges us in verse 3 now. So consider Christ. You must consider Christ. This is actually the first imperative command in these three verses. You must consider the one who endured this. He endured this hostility. He endured it for you. 
He endured it at the hands of sinner towards himself. This was directed to him. He endured it. Why? As we explained when we initially read the text, and hopefully you can see it, he did this purpose clause statement in order that you won't be weary and that you won't give up. Listen, Jesus endured what he did as a grace to you, as a grace to me, so that we will not get weary in our walk with him, so that we will not get weary in our relationship with God and give up. His grace is this constant example that empowers us to obey and follow and be transformed. Jesus literally endured all that he endured for you. For you, to strengthen you. What a gift. And as we walk through Hebrews, it's the gift that just keeps giving. It's not a gift that there, there in a sense, is no demand there's a call on the part of the preacher. We must obediently obey. We must obediently follow. We must obediently submit. And yet, even in that command, there's grace. There's strength that's offered to us through Christ. So hopefully, you can see, faithfully running the race of life with endurance, this is our call as we are firmly fixed on Jesus. Today, you can't do that if you don't know Jesus personally. If you've never turned in faith to him, you cannot faithfully follow him. The relationship must be there for that to occur. My running uh, began to improve over time. I got better and better. And before long, personally, all by myself, all alone in the neighborhood, I was uh, running longer and longer distances. Trust me, never very fast, but I was moving you know, each time I ran. Well, uh, along the way, I injured myself, and uh, for whatever reason, it hurt bad enough. Uh, uh, if you, um, most men are this way, if it hurts bad enough, they'll submit to going to the doctor. <laughs> if it doesn't, they're just whining, you know. So this one hurt bad enough that I was like, okay, yes, dear, I will go to the doctor. And I went to the doctor. He says, well, actually, this is what you did, and we have two options. We can operate on it, and you you can never run again uh, because you'll damage it if you do. So we can operate on it or you can take nine to 16 weeks, like four months off, you know, but then you'll, you'll be able to run again if it heals well. Well, guess what? I took option two and so I stopped and uh, I didn't ever really start again uh, for a very, very long time. So about a year later, I kind of started a little bit doing it again. And one weekend we, we, uh, got, uh, we got together with all the family the brother-in-laws were there. And my one brother-in-law, he was a big time runner. He's always been a big time runner. I ran with him in college and he always was faster than me and, and better runner. So anyway, my brothers-in-law, both of them, they say, Hey, we're going to run this race tomorrow. You, you got to run the race with us. Well, you know, in truth, I hadn't been training for that. But I didn't want to be, you know, the only, you know, loser brother-in-law not in the race. So, uh, so I said, okay, yeah, I'll, I'll run the race. 
So uh, my nephew's running the race, and I think maybe my niece is running the race, my two brothers-in-law are running the race, and my one brother-in-law, he's coaching me what to do. He knows what he's doing. So he's sneaking up to the front because he's actually, he doesn't want to be slowed down with the 1,500 people or so that are there in the race with me. So he leaves me way in the back. I'm at the back two-thirds of the people. And he said, listen, keep your own time because by the time you get to the starting line, the race will be two or three or four or five minutes in already, right? So you don't want that to mess up your time. I'm like, oh, yeah, no, I don't want that to mess up my time, <laughs> you know? So, so he's like, keep your own time, you know? And so he gets up to the front of the race, and I think he may have been done by the time I started. But anyway, so I run the race, and there's all these people running. You know, so that, that first mile, man, adrenaline took over, and I am, I'm flying. I'm running by people, you know, I'm, I'm just cruising, I'm waving at people going by, like, yeah, this is amazing, right? And I, I hit, I hit the, the two-mile marker, I, I'm through the first mile. That first mile, I ran probably eight minutes or so. That second mile, it was like all of those weights, right, that I had laid aside, they all hit me like a ton of bricks, and I slowed down, right? And I, I walked for half a second thinking, if I could get my breath, I'll make it. You know what I'm saying? And I slowed down. It was terrible. Second mile was terrible. It was terrible. The third mile got worse. A quarter mile before the end of the race, there was this hill. It felt like it went straight up in the air. You know what I'm saying? For like a quarter of a mile, I'm crawling up this hill. People three times my size are running past me. And I'm like, it's okay. I'll be fine. Keep going. You know? And so I get up to this hill and I finally, I can see the, I can see the end, right? And so now I'm running as fast as I can for the end of this race. And I probably was going slower than I did at the start. But I finally, I make it. I cross the finish line. And uh, there at the end of the race, I'm embarrassed. My brother-in-law, he finished, I think, in under 20 minutes, you know. Well, that's ridiculous. You know what I'm saying? Like that, it, it's kind of like a bully. You know what I mean? It was awful. And I did not finish anywhere near that. You know what I'm saying? Uh, I think there was a lady in a wheelchair finished right behind me. And um, so I come across the finish line. I'm like, oh, this is horrible. I cannot believe how badly I did. And as I crossed the finish line, my brother-in-law says to me, congratulations, you finished your first race. I was like, hey. Yeah, I did. I finished my first race. I can't believe it. I finished my first race, right? He says, good job. Your time wasn't half bad either. I was thinking, did you see it? Yeah, I mean, did you, you know, did they hide the real time from you? I don't think it was very good. But I remember the feeling when he said, you finished your race. How much more significant do you think it'll be when we see Jesus and he says, you finished your race? This is what the preacher is calling you and me to do. Finish the race. And we can do it if we fix our eyes on Jesus. We need help. We need his grace. Hey guys, welcome into the Faithful to the End podcast. We're so glad you've decided to join us today. Here you'll find easy access to all of Pastor Dave's sermons and even guest speakers at Graceway Church of Michiana. At Graceway Church of Michiana, we preach expositionally through the scriptures as we feel this is most consistent with the author's original intent in writing and yields both biblically and contextually accurate interpretations. At this time, we would invite you to grab your Bibles 
as we dig in to the Word of God.